Good morning, everybody. We've got several that are out this weekend, so we'll be praying for their safety in the service here in just a moment, but we're going to go ahead and get started. So today we're going to wrap up the uh, series on the Beatitudes that we have been in for the last uh, several weeks. So we're going to wrap that up today. Hope that you have enjoyed it. Hope that it has been a blessing to you. So, with the Beatitudes, of course, they are found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You can find them beginning in verse number 3. And um, the Beatitudes, it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which is... uh, sermon that Jesus preached, and uh, the Beatitudes came from that. It's, it's something that a lot of people have taught to their children in a lot of Sunday school lessons about the Beatitudes. So we took the Beatitudes and uh, kind of made an acronym out of them with the word recovery. And so we started with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The principle there is to realize that I'm not God, and I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable without God. Then E, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Happy are those who mourn. So E is earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to Him, and that He has the power to help me recover. Matthew 5 and 5, happy are those who are humble. Happy are those who are humble. So there's C, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 says, happy are the pure in heart. And so that is O, openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. Matthew 5 and 6, happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. So the principle there is V, voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask Him to remove my character defects. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, happy are those who are merciful to others. Happy are those who are merciful to others. The principle is E, evaluate all my relationships. Offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for harm I've done to others. Accept accept when to do so would, would harm them or others. So we covered in that lesson that if me going to them is just gonna make things worse for them, then I'm selfish if I say, well, I just need to, I need to feel better. There, there's a time and a place. There's times that are appropriate. There's times that are not appropriate. And when I go to them, I, I can't do it selfishly and say, well, as long as I feel better when this is all said and done, then that's all that matters. No, I need to keep them in mind too. I don't need to make things worse for them. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, happy are those who work for peace. So the principle is R, reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, 
Bible reading and prayer in order to know God and His will for my life and to gain the power to follow His will. And then finally, today is verse 10. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. And I know that kind of seems like a Debbie Downer, but it's not. Stay with me for the next little bit. Principle here is why? To yield myself to God, to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and my words. So that is the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ preached the greatest sermon in all of history. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he started that sermon by saying, I want to give you eight steps that will bring happiness to your life. And today, we call those the Beatitudes. When you look closely at the Beatitudes that Jesus gave, you will find that they are a summary of the steps to recovery that we've been studying over the past few weeks. And so as we wind up this series, we're going to be looking at the last step. Why? Yield myself to God. Yield myself to God. For what? To be used to bring this good news, this gospel message, to others, both by my example and by my words. God wants to use your experiences to reach others. Every single one of us, we have a part to play. We have a responsibility. We have a role. God wants to use your experiences to help other people. God wants to use you. Just say that. God wants to use me. God wants to use me. God wants to recycle the pain in your life for the benefit of others. We've all got pain. We've experienced it. We've dealt with it. We've carried it. We've battled it. God wants to recycle the pain in your life for the benefit of other people. You know, usually we think that God and talented people. All right, so it is 10.09, and I'm burning up already. Brother Tommy, could you bump those down just a little bit? I'm, I'm burning up, and I was going to deal with it, but I've seen four people start fanning in the last five minutes. So let's go ahead and do something about that. It might be. I'm reaching that time of life, I guess. Sometimes you just got to see a problem and solve a problem. Man. If anybody gets cold, you can borrow my jacket. So usually we think that God just uses really gifted and talented people. But that is not true. The truth of the matter is that God uses very ordinary people. He uses ordinary people. Here's the thing about being used by God. 
is when we reach a place where we say, okay, I'm ready. I want to be used by God. What we start doing then is saying, God, I want you to use my strength. That's what we want because that's what we think is going to be the best thing. God, I want you to use the strengths that I have for your kingdom. The Bible gives us example after example where God says, no, I'm not interested in using your strength. I want to use your weakness. You see, we beat ourselves up over our weakness. We crucify ourselves over our weakness. But God wants to use our weakness. Do you know why? You know why? Because it does not help anybody to see your strength. It doesn't help anybody to see your strength. Because they just look at you when they see your strength and they go, oh, well, I don't have that strength. I can't do it like that. I've been in, I've been in sales all of my adult life. And in training other people, here's what I found. I don't need to have a method that's complicated. I don't need to have some big, massive method that makes people go, wow, man, he's a rock star. If I want to impart into them so that they can be successful, then I need to be easily duplicatable. And so it doesn't do anybody any good to see my strength. That does not encourage them. That does not help them. But what does help people is when they see, wait a second. He's got weaknesses. And he's still being used by God. That's what helps people. They're not helped when they see our strength. They are helped when we are honest about our weakness. When you share your strength, they say, well, I'll never have that. But when you share your weaknesses, people say, oh, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. I get that. Me too. I get I got the same issue. I struggle with the same stuff. I'm weak in some of the same areas. As as a pastor, I'll be honest with you, I don't wish bad on anybody. I don't. I I want churches that preach truth to be the most successful things on the face of the planet. But I will be just flat honest with you, Brother David. It feels, it's encouraging to me. When I see a pastor of a church that from the outside looking in, I look at it and say, man, he's got it made. He doesn't have any problems. That church is big. That church has resources on top of resources. That church has every, they they can do whatever they want. They just write the check. It's kind of encouraging to me when I talk to those kind of pastors and find out they got problems too. They've got things that frustrate them. And I go, oh. So maybe there is hope for me. And don't misunderstand me. Not that, there's, not that there's stuff going on here where I'm just mad and wishing I wasn't here or anything like that. That's not it at all. But you'll, 
you'll, you'll, if you've never stood in the shoes of a pastor, you'll never understand the pressures that pastors feel. This isn't a pity party. I'm not wanting you to come up and give me a hug after it's over and cry on my shoulder. and It's nothing like that. I'm blessed to be here, and I'm glad I'm here, and I plan on being here forever. But let's just, let's just we're, we're being real. We're being honest about weaknesses. When you see that other people have struggles, and you realize that their world isn't perfect, it makes you sit back and say, okay. So they're not on some big plateau far and above anything that I could ever reach. We're kind of on the same plane. We're kind of in the same field. And it's an encouragement to realize that even in their weaknesses, they're still being used. And even in their weaknesses, God still has his hand on them because it makes me realize I don't have to be Superman for God to use me. You don't have to be a spiritual all-star for God to use you. God gets glory in using our weaknesses. When you understand that God can use your weakness and your hurt and your pain for His purpose, life then takes on a whole new meaning. And when you begin to practice this last step, then and only then do you truly have a genuine recovery. So we've been talking about recovery in the Beatitudes. We've been talking about all of these principles. This is the last lesson of this series. And so now we're fixing to ask the question, how do I know that I have gone through the process of recovery? What is the mark in the sand? What is the finish line? What is the goal where I can realize, hey, I have come through the process of recovery. Here's what it is. It is when you can begin to focus outside of yourself. Excuse you. When you can begin to focus outside of yourself, that is the proof that you have come through the process of recovery. When we stop being so self-absorbed and we start asking the question, how can I help other people? A lot of people ask the question, why has God allowed my pain? Why has God allowed my pain? Number one is to permit me to have a free will. To permit me to have a free will. That is the most beautiful channel of a relationship. Is when someone sticks by you, and loves you, 
and does everything they can for you because they choose to, not because they have to. I'm married to the greatest person in the world. And she loves me. She sticks by me. She helps me. She just does life with me. Not because somebody's holding a gun to her head. Not because somebody's making her do it. Because I can promise you, I wouldn't feel fulfilled if I knew that she was being forced. But it's her choice. Which for me, is one of the greatest honors in the world. God feels the same way. God doesn't want a bunch of robots to serve Him because they don't have a choice. God wants you and I to have freedom of choice. He wants us to have a free will. Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning with verse number 26 in the Living Bible, it says, I am giving you the choice today between God's blessings or God's curses. There will be blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and a curse if you refuse them and worship the gods of these other nations. We have a choice. The Bible tells us in Genesis that we are made in the image of God. Well, how are we like God? Here's how. God gave each of us the power of choice. You and I, we can choose right or we can choose wrong. We can choose God or we can choose Satan. We can choose life, or we can choose death. Why would God take such a risk? Because God wanted people who would love Him voluntarily. And you can't say that you truly love someone else unless you have had the opportunity to not love them. cannot say that you truly love someone else unless you have had the opportunity to not love them. You can't say you're good unless you've had the opportunity to be bad. Free will. Free choice. Not only does God give you a free will, And understand this, our free will is not only a blessing, but it is a burden. Because sometimes we make some really, really bad choices. And those really bad choices cause all kinds of pain and painful consequences In our lives. God would not like for you to have your pain. That's not what it's about. God does not take pleasure in your pain. But many times, the pain and the painful consequences that we deal with is just part of the package that comes with us having a free will. Because it's mostly our choices that bring the pain. But God still gives us a free will. 
Here's the thing, though. God did not just give me a free will. He gave everybody else a free will, too. And sometimes they don't do the right thing, and you get hurt as an innocent victim. It's real. It happens. Everybody else has a free will too. And sometimes it's not the choice that I made. It's not the decision I made. It's not the action I took. It was something that somebody else did. And it caused me pain. Could God have prevented that hurt from happening? Sure he could have. but he would have had to take somebody's free will from them in order to stop it. And if God takes somebody else's free will and leaves me with my free will, then he's not very good at being God. A lot of people ask questions. And I've seen people on social media, I've talked to people face to face that say, well, I'm not going to serve a God that lets babies be aborted. So you want us to all be robots that don't have a choice? The reason those babies are aborted is because somebody else has free will to make a choice. Now, unfortunately, it is a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, devastating, terrible choice. But they have free will, just like me just like you. Well, why do bad things happen? Because God gave us freedom of choice. And if God took somebody else's freedom of choice, he'd have to take mine too. And I don't know about you, but I really, I don't want to be a robot. Kind of like being able to choose. There's been a lot of things I've chosen that I've regretted. But I still like being able to choose. Now, but with all of that said, do you see the dilemma? Do you see the issue? The problem is that by having a free will, we get a blessing, but we also get a burden. And God says, I'm not going to override your will. If you don't want a relationship with God, don't worry. You won't have one because God is a gentleman. He is not going to chase you down, force you into a corner, and make you have a relationship with him. That's not God. We have free will. We have freedom of choice. God doesn't send anybody to hell. The only way that people go to hell is by rejecting everything that he does for us. If you say no to him, you cannot blame anybody but yourself because you have free will. So why does God allow my pain? Number one, to permit me to have a free will. Number two, to get my attention. To get my attention. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 30. 
I'll read this from the today's English version. Well, it's actually now known as the Good News Bible. That version says this, Sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. Sometimes God just uses pain to get our attention. Pain is a warning light on the dashboard of your life. Anybody have a light on on your dashboard in your car right now? I do. I do. My check engine light is on. Brother Jordan's looked at it. He's figured out what it is. My car has trouble starting whenever I try to crank it after I finish pumping gas. Now, once it cranks that time, every other time I crank it after that, it starts just like that. But whenever I go back to the gas pump, stick that nozzle in, fill it up with gas, and get back in my car and crank it, Every time. He's looked at it. He's told me what it was twice. I can't tell you what it is because that's way above my pay grade. They can talk in things and say, it's this, that, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, cool, okay. What do we need to do? But that light on my dash, that's not the problem in my car. It is a warning light. It is an indicator that there is a problem in my car. The pain that you feel in your life, the pain is not the problem. The pain is a warning light on your dashboard that lets you know there is a problem somewhere and that is why there is pain. And God uses pain to get our attention. Pain just says, wait a second, there is something wrong in my life. Pain is God's megaphone. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but He shouts to us in our pain. We don't change when we see the light. But we change when we feel the heat. Let me put it to you this way. That light in my car, it's been on for about two months. But as long as my car was running just fine, I just went on about my business. I didn't change anything. I didn't try to figure anything out. I didn't do anything about it. Then whenever I thought I was fixing to be stranded at a gas station somewhere, I said, oh, wait a second. I might need to do something about this. We don't change just because we see the light come on and go, oh, I think there might be a problem somewhere. We change whenever that problem starts really squeezing in on us and we go, wait a second, I got to do something about this or I'm fixing to be in a royal mess. Second Corinthians 
2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9, the Living Bible. It says, Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain turned you to God. It was a good kind of sorrow you felt, the kind of sorrow God wants His people to have, so that I need not come to you with harshness. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 7, again with the Living Bible. It says, When I had lost all hope, I turned my thoughts once more to the Lord. And my earnest prayer went to you in your holy temple. So God will use pain. And he allows pain. Because he wants me to have a free will. And number two, to get my attention. And now, number three, to teach me to depend on him. Teach me to depend on him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse number 8. I think you ought to know, dear brothers, about the hard time we went through in Asia. We were really crushed and overwhelmed and feared we would never live through it. We felt we were doomed to die and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. But that was good. He said, but that was good. For then we put everything into the hands of God who alone could save us, for he can even raise the dead. And he did help us and saved us from a terrible death. Yes, and we expect him to do it again and again. You'll never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. You'll never know God is all you need until God is all you have. If you never had a problem, then you would never know that God could solve problems. The truth is that there are some things we only learn through pain because pain is life's greatest teacher. Psalm chapter 119 beginning with verse number 71. The punishment you gave me was the best thing that could have happened to me, for it taught me to pay attention to your laws. They are more valuable to me than millions in silver and gold. So number three, God allows pain because it teaches me to depend on Him. And now finally, number four, God allows pain to give me a ministry to others. To give me a ministry to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. One of the greatest reasons that God allows pain in my life is to give me a ministry to others. Pain makes me humble in spirit. And it also makes me sympathetic and sensitive to the needs of others. Pain prepares you to serve. Anybody ever looked at tough situations that others dealt with and you got frustrated 
with how they were navigating their way through it. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. They just need to give it to God, and they just need to do this, and they just need to do that, and they just this. They just need to get over it. They just, and then all of a sudden it happened to you. And you realized, oh, wait a second. And then the next time you see somebody that has that issue, you don't get frustrated with them and you don't look down on them and you don't think they're pathetic. You, you look at them and you go, oh, man, I know how that feels. Pain makes us sympathetic and compassionate to others. Everybody needs recovery of some type. Everybody. And who better to help them than someone who has been through the same kind of situation that they are in. Which is why I said in the beginning of this lesson, God wants to recycle the pain in your life to help others. But you've got to be open about it. God is bigger than those situations and those people who have hurt you. No matter what other people have done to you, God can turn it around and use it for good. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 in the New International Version says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Understand this. God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. But you and I can waste it if we don't learn from it and if we don't share it with other people. Which leads me to the question that we will answer in closing. How do I use my pain to help others? How do I use my pain to help others? First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So hear me when I'm saying this. You need to always be prepared to give an answer to this question. How did you make it? How did you survive? How did you come through that? You need to always be prepared to give an answer to that question. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Because you've got coworkers, you've got family members, you've got friends, you've got acquaintances that they know the things you've been through. And at some point, they want to know 
how do you still have hope? And you need to be prepared to give them an answer. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Dear brothers, if a Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help him back onto the right path, remembering that next time it might be one of you who is in the wrong. Share each other's troubles and problems, and so obey our Lord's command. Everybody say command. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, oh, well, just maybe if you want to. It is a command. If you are a Christian, you are to share in the problems of other people and help them like God has helped you. So here's three suggestions for sharing your story. First, be humble. Be humble. When you witness to somebody, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's not me talking to them from my castle as they grovel on the ground below. Be humble. When we witness to somebody, we're not saying that, hey, I've got it all together. We're saying, hey, we're in the same boat, but we know where we need to go. Let's go together. So be humble. Number two, be real. Be real. When you witness to somebody, be honest about your hurts and your faults. Be courageous enough to be vulnerable and real. Because that's when you can help somebody else open up to God. And it's this atmosphere of acceptance that we want to cultivate in our church family. And I can say this, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, that is one of the most beautiful things about this church family. Is that we create an atmosphere of family where someone can come in and realize, I don't have to be perfect to be here. Be real. And finally, be kind. Just share your story. God wants you to be a witness, not a defense attorney. Just share your story. And if they want to argue about it, first of all, they can't argue with your story because it's your story. They can't argue with your experience because it's your experience. Don't get in an argument with them because I've got news for you. You cannot argue someone into heaven. You can't do it. You can't argue someone into heaven and you can't hate someone into truth. Just share what happened to you and then let God do the convicting. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning with verse number 3. I'll read from the Message Bible and I'll read fast because I've got just a couple of minutes to close. God tested us thoroughly to make sure we were qualified to be trusted with this message. Be assured that when we speak to you, we're not after crowd approval, only God approval. Since we've been put through the battery of tests, you're guaranteed that both we and the message are free of error, mixed motives, or hidden agendas. We never use words to butter you up. No one knows that better than you. And God knows we never use words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. Even though we had some standing as Christ's apostles, we never threw our weight around or tried to come across as important with you or anyone else. 
We weren't aloof with you. We, look, you, we took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending, but we cared for you the way a mother cares for her children. We loved you dearly, not content to just pass on the message. We wanted to give you our hearts, and we did. Something amazing happens when you are willing to honestly share your story. It not only gives hope to them, but it gives healing to you. You're willing to share your story with others. It gives hope to them and it gives healing to you. Every time you share your story with somebody, you get a little bit stronger and you're healed just a little bit more. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love there, there are only two things that you cannot do in heaven. One of them is sin. And the other is witness. Everything else, we can do that in heaven. There's only two things that will not be possible to do in heaven. Sin and witness. Now as I close, let me ask you this question. Which one of those two reasons do you think God has left you on this earth for? Do you think he has left you here to sin? Or do you think he's left you here to witness? Because those are the only two things you can't do in heaven. And if there's no purpose of being here, then he'd just take us out. If we're still here, we still have a purpose. And it's not to sin. It is to witness. It is to be a vessel of grace for people in need. It is to be a heart of love to the hurting. It is to be a place that people can come and find help in their time of need. It is a place, and it is a purpose. As his word said, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come that my house may be filled. It's not God's will for the church to just sit in the church and wait for people to come to us. God wants us to get up and go and find them and compel them to come that his house may be filled. The conclusion of my recovery is that I focus on others and focus on helping them get to the place that they need to be in God. That is the church. That's the church. Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for each one that is here. God, I pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let it lead and guide us. God, let this word settle into our hearts and spirits, that we would adapt ourselves to it, that we would conform ourselves after it, that we would be everything, God, that you have called us to be. 
I pray, God, that that would be done in every heart and in every mind. I pray, God, for your will in the remainder of this service today. Have your way. Let your will be done in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you today. Thank you for being here. We're going to begin the worship service in just a few minutes.